0: started this evening we're in uh, chapter 12 we're at the we just finished last week the um, uh, issues of sanctification and so we're going to pick up right along in there uh, this week and and continue on before we begin let's take a few moments for prayer and uh, prepare ourselves to look at what God's Word has to say about some really important subjects let's pray Father, again, thank you for the blessing of being able to come together in a free country and open up your word. Father, we thank you most of all for your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your revelation of yourself, we know as the Bible. And Father, we thank you for just being given the privilege of opening it up and studying it to learn how we should live our lives. So Father, I pray that's what we would do this evening, that as we open it up, Father, that you would Indeed, let the Holy Spirit teach us about these things. Help us to be able to not just uh, have a knowledge of it, but really an understanding. And may we be able to recall it at the right times to apply in the proper situations that you might receive all the honor and the glory. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been uh, working through this on this little chart. Hopefully, you're familiar with that. And and when I mention it again, it's a little boring to you. If it's getting a little boring, then maybe that's doing a a good job. But we have to start with this, this what we call the top line here, the God line. Where do you start? Where's your original, uh, original step of faith? Do you believe that someone or something created all things, because out of that decision grows a lot of various conclusions that are reached throughout the course of our life. And we have been through and seen that it is uh, is reasonable to believe it was someone that created all things, not just uh, some type of confusing mass that suddenly came into existence with order and um, uh, intelligence and all those things that went along with it. Rather, it is indeed the product of the almighty God who spoke and brought the heavens into existence. He made a creation. He decided to reveal himself to it. Now, that, that just makes sense. Wouldn't you do that if you made a thinking living creature that, that could think and, and converse back and have a relationship with you? I believe he made us uh, so he would have, have the opportunity for greater fellowship. We have to keep in mind he didn't need us. Uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and eternity passed before He brought anything into. Ex- they were happy, you know. All we did was maybe mess it up a little bit. So He, His decision to share Himself with us is an amazing uh, step that, that he has taken to be able to create a being, give that being the freedom to choose even against him so that there could be a real relationship because if there's not that freedom, then the relationship is mechanical, it's sterile, it is not real, it is robotic, but what did God do? He made a bunch of goofballs down here that could really come to love him in an, in an amazing way. He decided to reveal himself to us, and being God, it would be perfect. I had a discussion uh, yesterday, in fact, with some pastors about the original text and how you determine the original text. We call it textual criticism. That means how do you determine what the original text is. And it's one of those things that, if you're not careful, can strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Because 95% of all the texts agree with each other. So if you spend your time worrying about the other 5% and forget about the 95%, it's easy to get focused on the wrong things. And so we discussed that, and the fa- very fact that the uh, text is in 95% agreement with all the other texts we have, 40,000 of them, that tells us we got a pretty accurate rendering of what God's word uh, indeed says. So we look at that, and we see inspiration, that goes with that. If God inspired a written revelation of himself, then we can have confidence in that written revelation, so we should try to learn that. As we approach that written revelation, we see that it's the author's will that is important, not our will. And that leads us to two different modes of interpretation of the Bible. The first is literal, historical, grammatical school of thought, which is we believe the Bible literally says and means what it it says. If it says that there was a flood covered the whole earth, the flood covered the whole earth. If it says that God spoke and brought the heavens into existence, that's how it happened. We believe in the literal historical, meaning It everything's got a historical context, and grammatical school of thought because translations, much to some people's chagrin, are not inspired of God. Translations of the Bible are not inspired. The original autographs In the original Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, that's what was inspired. But from there, translations can become subjective. So that's why they have to constantly be checked against the original languages by people that know them, have been trained in them, know how to use them, and uh, are honest in their approach. That's why why it needs to be done. But we study to find the author's will, and that manifests humility. Instead of trying to read something in. The other school of thought is not literal, historical, grammatical. It's allegorical. It is you can read in anything you want to do. And to me, that's a manifestation of self-will. Wanting to find what you want to find rather than reading out what the author wants you to know. Now, if, if God has revealed himself, and he has, then, and we study his word, we can find truth. That should tell us that truth does exist. The world will tell you there's no truth. There are no absolutes. There's nothing you can really hang your hand on. God's word said, yes, there is. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. How about literally? What does that mean? Jesus alone is the way. The way to heaven. He is the truth. The definition of it. The personal revelation of truth. And the life. He's the one that gives life, sustains life, maintains life, and gives it to us for all of eternity. That's who he is. And with that, we can have assurance. As we read the Bible, he says, Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You can have confidence in that statement. If you believe in him, that he died for your sins, was buried, and rose again on the third day, then you can have confidence and assurance that your salvation, your eternal salvation is forever secured. Now, knowing this can lead to a changed life. We're always changing. God's the only thing that we know of that does not change. He's immutable. He is unchanging. Everything else in the universe changes. That includes us. That includes the world. That includes the, um, the heavens and, the, uh, and space. It all changes. But a changed life, according to God, is going to manifest some things. And it should manifest the life of service to others instead of life of serving oneself. See, the world says, serve yourself. Look out for old number one. Do what you've got to do to survive. Use all your coping mechanisms to survive. And the, the Christian life is, how do you give yourself up for the benefit of other people? It's a life of service. And that's basically what we're looking at. A changed life, and it's one that's transformed into the image of Christ, not conformed to the image of the world. So we are serving God because he's already given us all the fame, fortune, power, and pleasure that we'll ever need for all of eternity. That's why we serve him. We're, we're not serving him trying to gain what had been lost by Adam. We're serving him because we've already got it back as believers. And see, that's the way the devil turns things around. How are you going to know this transform life? Because you're going to love God and you're going to love other people in ways you never thought imaginable. You'll learn to love your enemies. You'll learn to uh, uh, have compassion on them. We will become Christ-like. who so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Now, that's the transformed life, and one of the great things about a transformed life is that we're going to have a hope. We're going to have a confidence about the future. These things are written to you who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you may know you have eternal life. It's not guesswork anymore, and it's not arrogance. Some people would say, if you think you've gained heaven, then that's just arrogant. Now, if you believe in a system of works, you might say that. But if you believe in a, in, a, in a manifestation of grace, which is what the Bible reveals, then you say, I'm only there by the grace of God. That's the only reason I'm there. So we, we sing hallelujah forevermore, I think, because we realize the grace that he's poured out upon us. And with that hope we get comes peace. And that's, that's a peace of soul. You know, the, the war can be raging on the outside, but we can have peace on the inside. And that's really what makes the difference. Now, we have been looking in chapter 12 at the Christian life. We have been looking at various issues from the, from the position of three phases. This, uh, when I learned this a long time ago, over 40 years ago, this made more sense to me than than maybe anything else because it helped me understand how, how life progresses. Phase 1, and it's defined as phase 1, the Bible doesn't say phase 1, we define it as phase 1, is when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When that happens, you are sanctified. Now, sanctified means made holy. That's a big, long word to say a little bitty word. It means to be made holy. The root meaning of it is set apart. You are made different. And we are, we are set apart. The penalty for sin no longer binds us. It no longer condemns us. The penalty for sin has been erased. And so phase one, sanctification or holiness, is permanent because we've received the holiness of God it's called the imputation of righteousness uh, same thing it was the way it was with Abram Genesis 15:6 Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him as righteousness see it's by it's always been by grace through faith that's how we get the righteousness of God so we can stand in front of a holy God because unholiness has trouble standing in front of holiness and so he said, okay, I'll give you my righteousness so that you're able to uh, come into my presence one of these days and we can have a holy fellowship. Phase two is, uh, comes out at one of the key verses from Peter, be ye holy as he is holy. That's a call to believers to become holy. So we've been set apart positionally, you know, the positional holiness, but experience-wise we still have a battle going on. And it's a battle between the flesh and the spirit, and so part of this being born again is becoming holy as God is holy. be ye holy as your heavenly Father is holy and that's a, that's a mark of a growing Christian. This is salvation from the power of sin. We're fighting the power of sin as long as we're hooked to this body, we're fighting the power of sin, and it can be sins of the mental attitude, sins of the tongue sins uh, uh, that are overt and on the outside but we're still battling the power of sin as long as we're connected to this to this body if we're growing we're battling the power of sin and there's an increasing experiential holiness that is dependent on consistent decisions to live according to the word of God and to cleanse oneself from sin it's quite interesting uses that are that are found there In uh, scripture about like 1 John 1 7 and 1 9 about if we confess our sins he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness that's a process it's addressed to believers he's talking about believers and John when he's inspired to write that realizes that, that believers still sin and what do you do about it 1 John 1 7 if we walk in the light as he is in the light then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, keeps on cleansing us from all sin. That's what he is doing. He is making a usable vessel out of us. Because if all we are sin nature, loose cannon sin nature is running around, then we're not that useful to him. But he wants us to be a useful vessel. Now, there are carnal believers. The Corinthians are the poster children for that. When you have carnal Christian, you look. And you see a picture of the, the Corinthian church. Because they're called that. Now carnal Christians losing the battle to the power of sin. As I mentioned many times, just go chapter by chapter through 1 Corinthians. And every one of them is something they messed up. Every single one of them. And divided up over who baptized who. You know, who who did this? Did Paul do this? Cephas do this? Apollos? Who, who did the baptism? So they divided up over that. Evidently, it had a ranking system that if Paul baptized you, you were higher in the elite core. Uh, but then, of course, you get the real self-righteous one, and I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Okay, so there is the uh, the nose in the air type of thing. But what was there, over and over again, they had—they were losing the battle with the power of sin in their life from everything imaginable, rejecting authority in chapter 4, flagrant immorality permitted in the church in chapter 5, bringing lawsuits against each other in secular courts in chapter 6, messing up. The whole institution of marriage in chapter 7. Flaunting their liberty in chapter 8. I mean, just on and on and on. Every chapter is something they messed up. They were carnal Christians losing the battle of the power of sin. Yet they were still Christians. I just love this because this phase one we just talked about. Phase one. Yeah, that chart is up there. I just thought I better turn around and look. But <laughs> the, the carnal Christians are called Saints. The Corinthian Church, Chapter One, Verse Two, to the saints who are at Corinth. You read the book, and you go, there weren't any saints at Corinth. Then why did he write the book? The book saint. The word saint is hagios. It's the root word for holy. So where'd we get holy from? Here are these unholy acting people who are classified as holy. How could they have? How could they be classified as holy? Cause God had given them. His righteousness. That's how they'd been set apart from the penalty for sin. The carnal Christian. And then the believer, the Christian's life in eternity, the presence of sin is removed. That's phase three. That's the day we're all looking forward for. Holiness is perfected. No more sin forevermore. No more sin because there's no more death. See, the wages of sin is death. So if there's no, if there's no more death, there's no more sin. Now we can't even imagine that now, but that is what eternity don't won't that be heaven when nobody else is going to sin <laughs> and mess with your life? <laughs> won't that be heaven and Of course you're not going to sin and mess with theirs either, so I mean that's that's what part of what heaven is that's the believer's life now, another issue is spirituality. it's quite interesting, and part of what we're looking at in this chapter has to do with. Uh, spiritual issues and spirituality and that also is distinguished as phase one phase two and phase three now true spirituality will unite Ephesians chapter four teaches that other passages teaches true spirituality will will unite but you know one of the most divisive topics in, in of systematic theology and the history of the church spirituality isn't that amazing that which is supposed to unite us is frequently, uh, out of that frequently comes the arguments that divide us. And so what we try to do, and, and I think what people should try to do, is that we look for our commonalities. We work on our differences until we all achieve the unity of the faith, Ephesians 4, 12 to 16. That's what we're all supposed to do. And we try to come together and figure out how can we work together. And tell you the truth it's getting more and more difficult because I I know a pastor 30 years ago in a little town in Arkansas and he got together with the uh uh the pastoral with well, the pastoral alliance or something like that and they decided they were going to do a big crusade throughout this little little town. It's a small town of Arkansas and there were 30 40 pastors there. Uh, to talk about how they were going to do this crusade and get the gospel out their community. I mean, great, great motivation, idea. They all came together, and this pastor I know says, I think one thing we need to decide on is the gospel. And that was as far as it got. It never got any farther, because they couldn't even figure out how to come together on a gospel to say, by grace through faith. And so that one, needless to say, didn't happen. But uh, it doesn't mean just because we can't agree on it, we're not supposed to preach it. That's the gospel. We are saved by grace through faith. Now, what about spirituality? Phase one, spirituality is, again, phase one, is a, a salvation from the penalty for sin. But what happens the moment you believe in Christ? There's a permanent presence based on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who never departs. These passages, Romans 8.11, 1 Corinthians 6.19, the uh, uh this this indwelling Holy Spirit that you have now is permanent. It's an absolute spirituality. I've seen arguments over the years, systematic theologians, is spirituality absolute or relative? And they argue in either or position. It's either It's either absolute, you either are filled with the Spirit or you're not filled with the Spirit. Either or. Or the relative spirituality says there are differing degrees of influence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And what's the answer? Oftentimes Satan likes to do arguments, getting us to argue either or rather than both. How about both? Does that fit? That seems to get left out of the options when people start fighting with each other. The moment you believe in Christ, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's forevermore, and that's an absolute. But how influential is the Holy Spirit in your life? That's relative. That's relative to how much you submit to Him, how much you know of His Word, how much you want to know of His Word, how badly that you want to do the things pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. That's relative to that. So there is an absolute and a relative spirituality. For those statements, some would call me a heretic. And it was <laughs> kind of like, uh, the other day I was asked a question about such and such and it, I f- felt like it was straining out a net and swallowing a camel. I said, honestly, I don't care. Okay? <laughs> There's some things that don't make a difference in the Christian life other than to divide. And so this to me is, is so important because if we, if we don't stop and say, can both of these answers be... That's what systematic theology does. It forces you to say, here is a statement, here is a statement. They seem to contradict, but they're inspired of God, so they can't. Okay? That's what Solomon was trying to teach us in Proverbs. To understand the sayings that a wise man has. How to understand a riddle. How to take it when two things don't seem to fit. And yet they do. Because they're both stated as truth from the Almighty. That's an invitation to grow in wisdom. To figure it out. To see how they fit. And see that's phase two. When you're submitting more and more to the power of the Spirit, not grieving the Spirit, not quenching the Spirit, you're wanting more and more the Spirit to lead your life, then there's an increasing influence in your life. Uh, Through the study of His Word, the Holy Spirit, who's the revealer of His Word, and, and the compliance. As He fills you up to the fullness of God, producing fruit. That's what He wants to do. But see this is a this is a two way deal here i 'm not more powerful than the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit, in the divine wisdom that made us to begin with, says you need to comply with some of this. you need to make decisions about whether or not you want it now one of these days we 're going to t- Take you there all at once. It's called the rapture. <laughs> it's going to happen all at once. This this um, uh, corruptible will become incorrupt. This mortal will become immortal. There, this uh, some things will happen all at once. But till then, it is a growth process. And what does he want? To, he wants to fill us up with all the fullness of God. That's what he wants. Now, what's the fullness of God that we could do weeks of study on being filled up to all the fullness of God, but that's it. We could go through Ephesians. That's an in, in part of Ephesians chapter 3, which is interesting because the first three chapters of Ephesians are theology, and then the last three chapters are practical applications. And so he ends it with that particular theological issue of being filled up to all the fullness of God. And then chapters 4 through 6, he talks about what that means. And so, That's what the growing Christian is. He wants to know what God wants him to do so he can do it. And then the carnal Christian is losing the battle of the power of sin. And it's a lack of reliance on the Holy Spirit. Permitting him less and less influence in one's life. I think the Galatians 5 passage, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. We learned all those as a kid, right? The fruits of the Spirit, which is actually fruit in the singular of the Spirit all looked at together and then the works of the flesh that is a plural that is that is found there and if we're more interested in carrying out the works of the flesh then we're not more interested then 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 we're not carrying out the fruit of the spirit we're not letting him change us but we should be the willing participant lord show me where i'm messing up and work on me that should be our constant prayer And then phase three is the Christian's life in eternity with the presence of sin removed. We have a completed spiritual liberty. That is, that's going to be amazing. Fully uh, informed, fully uh, in tune with the Holy Spirit. If you're in tune with the Holy Spirit, you're in tune with the Father and the Son. Ah, That's kind of how we, uh, that's kind of where we're going as we look at some of these. I I find another battle oftentimes raging Some people are all about the Father. Some people are all about the Son, Jesus only. Some people are all about the Spirit. And they neglect the other two members of the Trinity. Yet the Bible goes to great pains to tell you, don't split them up. (laughs) They are totally interconnected. As a new student, I decided one time that I was going to determine the difference between Yahweh and Elohim and that Yahweh had to be the son and Elohim had to be the father Ruach was pretty easy it was a spirit but but the more you look at it the more you find out those two words are used in, interchangeably and what are you going to do with Yahweh Elohim <laughs> as it occurs in the, in the Old Testament and it comes up and it's a constant battle like Deuteronomy 6, they are one, There's one God. don't split them out, they manifest themselves in three different personalities. don't try and rip one of them away from the other two. It leads to a, a theology that is that is incorrect. Now what about fellowship? Now, it makes sense that if it's the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, we should have a fellowship with all three of them, shouldn't we? Alright, what does the Bible say about it? Fellowship, phase one. Salvation from the penalty for, uh, for sin, once again, it's permanent, based on a love relationship with our with our Savior. That's who that see that verse quote, 1 Corinthians 1 9? Who's that to? The Corinthians? <laughs> what do you tell them in verse two? To the saints who are at Corinth? What did he tell them in verse 9? He's talking to them as believers. And he's insure, assuring them they have not lost their salvation. He does the same thing in chapter 3 with the, goal seal, with the, the big uh, judgment seat. And he says, save so as by fire. He's saying, you haven't lost this salvation from the penalty for sin. As goofy as you are, you haven't lost that. But you need to grow. You have inside of you now God residing. That's spirituality. The Holy Spirit is moved in. So the key is get out of the way and let him work. Let him work. There is a phase two uh, for the growing Christian. What is fellowship? It's an increasing relationship as his word is studied. Decisions are made compatible with walking in the light and confessing sins. That is a phase two fellowship. And uh, there's a carnal fellowship. Christian, which is, has no intimacy with God. God is some impersonal force. They may be saved, so as by fire, but they haven't figured out that God is a personal being that wants a relationship with them. So they just soon walk in the darkness, try and hide from God, try to get away from Him. Not dealing really with the issue of sin in their life. And sadly, right now, there are a lot of churches that don't even talk about sin, As as if it didn't exist. And so how many people are battling the power of sin. If they don't even think it exists anymore. And you know who else doesn't think sin. Who else does not think there's such a thing as sin. It's Hindus. And I mentioned this the other day. Hindus think well there's good karma and bad karma. But they're not going to call it a sin. So when you start talking to a Hindu. They're going to go deer in the headlights on you when you start talking about, when you start talking about uh, sin. Because they don't comprehend sin. And you have to explain that. Spend the time and explain that, you know, when it's a violation of a divine standard. And... Um, uh, a lot of them think they can become God because it's reincarnation. And the end result of reincarnation is the Satan's lie. You can become God. So eventually if you keep going, then you too can become God. Well, how can you become God and be a, such a such a, a fraud? And that, that's interestingly enough what leads a lot of Buddhists to the Lord. They, they, um, they finally realize that all this perfection and peace that they seek is unattainable they finally realize that then they say how can i how can yeah, one, one guy that i'm familiar with that was proclaimed a god when he was 5 years old because he could astral project and do all this stuff and he was so far out there and the older he got the more he said how can i be a god when i'm su- such a mess when i have no peace of soul when i he was being driven crazy by demons he said, how can I, there's no way I can be a God or become a God. I'm too far away. It's the interesting thing about God. God has always been God. God didn't become a God. He has always been God. And no other creature can become a God. It's an impossible task. But fellowship. Now we're going to look at some types of fellowship. Because there are types of fellowship. And we can actually, we can learn this from just our relationships. Learn this with the marriage relationship, family relationship, other types of relationship. First of all, for fellowship to occur, there has to be contact. That's the initial meeting. There's no fellowship unless there's contact of, of some kind. That's the initial thing. And we have contact with God. Through faith in his son. And that brings salvation. That's an absolute fellowship. We just looked at that. He who believes in the son has life. He who does not believe in the son. The wrath of God abides on him. So that's a pretty clear, pretty clear statement. So it starts with initial contact. And then we have confession. I think confession is the ability to realize your own mistakes and shortcomings. Now we're having trying to have fellowship with the Almighty, right? How many shortcomings does he have? Don't say it out loud. <laughs> like none, OK? We have to realize God is perfect. That's who He is. He has no failures, no misgivings. He has done it all right. So confession is about us, right? Now, in a relationship between two human beings that both have sin natures, I think there needs to be that level of honesty that is willing to admit mistakes. Because that's that's what happens. That that's what says, okay, honey, I missed that. Okay? More than once. And so this confession, that's the second step of of fellowship. That's the second step. Being willing to admit to the faults and mistakes, and then trying to to see that you can correct them. There's a confession as necessary. See, sin interrupts fellowship with God, with the intimacy that we so much desire. Sin is a is a hindrance to that, because God does not like sin in any of His creatures. I think about <laughs> think about Moses. Moses, the perfect man. Whoops, he wasn't, was he? Moses, the perfect man, what happened? had two children. What did not happen? Circumcision. What did God do with Moses? He came after him. And Moses complied with what he was supposed to do. Correct? That's what happened. Now, what happened? The sin, even though to Moses, he thought his wife was going to do it. It was his responsibility to check up on it. And he didn't check up. And so God said, okay, you, you, we got a problem here. You need to fix this problem. And confession restores the intimacy of our relationship. It doesn't mean we'll forever be close, but it, it's like putting the car in. It, it may be in, in putting it into neutral so you can put it into drive. It may be that type of, of thing. Confession, no, that's the second part of fellowship. Communication. And see, that's part of being honest. When you when you meet someone, you want to think about getting married or something like that. It starts with contact. And then there has to be an honesty that comes about and grows because facades can only be maintained for so long. So for a real relationship, there needs to be an honesty back and forth, a communication. And see, the relationship grows with communication. I know several people and several people had great marriages and they actually for a period of years only talked with each other on the phone. Didn't have any physical contact. This was back before Vimeo and and all that other stuff. Skype and all those other things with all those video. This is, you guys are old enough to know what I'm talking about. Back back when the the telephone hooked with a cord was the one of the greatest inventions ever, and when they came out with that that long you remember this long cords that they had, so you could walk all over the house dragging this cord around behind you and didn't have to stay confined to one place those were so those were worth every penny of it when to get one of those. but then you could communicate with people. now that's what and think about communication with the Almighty. You're honest before him. That's what he wants, right? To be, Because he already knows you inside and out. Why not be honest? Why try to fool him? It's not going to work to try and fool him. But communication involves an interaction with God through study of his word. You know, when you want to know somebody, you want to learn about them. You want to gain a knowledge that is there. Hopefully an understanding. and it, And it does with God through the study of his word. Prayer, pray without ceasing, First Thessalonians five seventeen, and letting His Word speak to us and cha- let it change our lives. That's what He wants. And Jesus said, John seven seventeen was a verse that um, had a role in changing my life and my thinking in a lot of ways because I thought at one time that studying the Word was all about knowledge. And that God was impressed with the knowledge that we were able to gain and remember, and the notebooks that we had at our house, and all these other things. I kind of thought that's what impressed Him. Then I keep getting hit with these verses. I went through and taught the Gospel of John a long time ago, and I remember getting hit in John five with this passage addressed the Pharisees, and He said, "You search the Scriptures." Because you think in them, the scriptures, you have eternal life. It wasn't a written word that imparted eternal life. He said, you search the scripture, you think in them you have eternal life. But these bear witness of me. He's the one that imparts eternal life. The scripture is designed to lead us to the king. That's what it's designed to do. It is not the king. And that's so difficult to realize at times. The knowledge of the word of God is so very important. But it's not the end. It's not the end. It's actually just the beginning of a real relationship. And he says, if any man is willing to do his will in John seven seventeen, Then he will know the teaching. Whether it is of God or I speak for myself. That's what Jesus said in his humanity. If any man is willing to do his will. It's not enough to just want to know it. Because just wanting to know it leads to arrogance. 1 Corinthians 8.1 Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Just Just knowing it is not enough. We need to want to do it. And then, he says, then you'll really know it. You'll start to have a real fellowship, a real communication. And then what we have after a period of time is connection. What happens with with young lovers headed toward toward marriage? they meet they're honest with each other, hopefully they communicate back and forth over a period of time and then they connect they connect, and it's an ongoing interaction with God and with other people. That's what fellowship is about. You know we have fellowship we had good fellowship this this last Sunday with the, the potluck dinner and sitting around being able to visit and talk and things, those are were, those were always great times. And see what's happening? That there's, there is not that we're confessing our sins to one another. We're coming to each other. We're communicating, finding out about things about people and them about us. And um, uh, then there's a connection people you really like and enjoy and come to appreciate over a period of time uh, more than you can imagine. So the connection is relative to the degree we listen, to the degree we walk, to the degree we abide in the word and produce fruit while we're serving as a priest to God. There comes a real connection between people. And that's the intimacy that we're talking about. That's the intimacy that God wants with us. And see, he he already knows us from the inside out. So that part of that communication is already done. Now it's up to us to fill in the fill in the void. And then there's the constant. That's the that's the the fifth type of fellowship. That's when the rapture happens. That's whenever we get our new bodies. This is an eternal, absolute, and fully intimate fellowship forevermore. It'll be in heaven, in the presence of God. A little verse, Philippians six. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That good work he began was the imputation of righteousness. What's he going to do? Complete it. You're going to have a new body that's going to be fully righteous. That can come into the presence of God for all of eternity. And you know, I don't think we're ever going to get tired of singing the same old songs. Up there. <laughs> Even though... At times we do, we're going, oh gosh, not that one again. <laughs> we're singing that song again. But there's gonna, it's going to be such a new quality. Remember Revelation 5, I think it is, and it says, and they sang a new song. Yeah, the new song wasn't really new, was it? Because it's already been written down. We know what they're going to be singing. It's new in respect to quality whenever we're singing that song up in heaven. It's a whole different uh, viewpoint and vantage point. Now, how do we connect with the Trinity? And this is done through faith, hope, and love. Interestingly enough, you, find, you start finding threes, they start interconnecting with each other quite frequently. You find the, the threes connecting with each other, and then you find three, like the unholy trinity, of Satan, the false prophet, and the Antichrist coming together, and they're in combat with the other threes. But fellowship with the Trinity grows. As a person matures as a Christian. Your fellowship is going to grow with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. That's what's what's going to happen. We'll find that faith, hope, and love are the primary ways to persevere in the last days. We're in the last days. We believe we are. I believe we are. How do we want to grow? Let our faith grow. Okay, let us appreciate the object of our faith all the more. Let our hope grow. Closer we get to the trumpet sound, the more con- convinced I am that the Lord is coming back. I don't know when. I don't have a day and an hour set <clears throat> or anything like that. What I do is have a tremendous and great hope. It's not wishful thinking anymore, it is a confident expectation because His Word says things that I can trust and, de- and depend on. And love. In the last days, most people's love will grow cold. Remember that from the Olivet Discourse? Most people's love will grow cold. Our love needs to increase. Our love for one another, our love for the lost. We're not, we don't love them because they're lost. We love them in spite of the fact they're lost. Just like God loved us. And so that's our, our viewpoint. What can we do to get the good news out to a lost and dying world? To try to figure out a plan... Pray about it and then carry it out and let God change it along the way as, as need be. But He just calls us to take the step of faith, then He guides our, our steps. Faith, hope, and love. Faith is the present assurance of the fulfilled promises of God. Hope is the, concerning the future promises of God. And love is a response to the Lord through the expression of spiritual qualities. What is love? Love is described. It's Agape love is hard to define. I had a guy just working, just got out of seminary, and he said, call me one day, and he says, can you give me a good definition of agape love? And I said, well, it's kind of like nailing jello to a wall. (laughs) I said, I've been through all the words. I've been through the hundred-odd usages of the word in the New Testament. I've been through all of them, and you know, Love is described in multiple ways, but defined is a different thing. And I said, the best definition I've seen is doing what's right and best, even when you don't want to. (laughs) That seems to be the best definition of agape love. Love is patient, it is kind, it is gentle. And then we find Romans 12, the love, hey, agape, is without hypocrisy on hypocrites. There's no false faces to it. We find that real agape love is real. It is not phony. It is not put on. It is the real the real thing. And that love is that response. Now, <clears throat> through faith in the Son, the Spirit connects us to the Father with great potential for fellowship with each member of the Godhead. Through faith in the Son. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. At the moment of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit seals us. Indwells us. And connects us to the Father. I could put up here First Thessalonians first chapter as well. That says that we're not only in Christ. We're in the Father. So we are connected to the, to the Trinity. By at the moment of faith in the Son. Now, at salvation, we're recipients of a spiritual gift and a ministry. And those things are designed to have impact. They're designed to touch other people. It's God that works out all the interactions that happens. But he says there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Okay, so who gives the spiritual gift? The Holy Spirit. There are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. Who gives you a ministry? A way to express your gift. It's the Lord that does that. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things. Huh. It sounds like that he gave me a gift. He gave me a ministry. And he says, you do it and leave the outcome to me. That just to me is as clear as it gets. Do the right thing. Let God work it out. Because sometimes in ministry, I can tell you, it seems like you're spinning your wheels. Sometimes it seems like nothing is happening. Sometimes it seems like nobody on the world cares. Sometimes you get the Elijah complex. I and only I am left. <laughs> Remember that one? He just had a great spiritual victory over the prophets of Baal. He got afraid of Ahab and Jezebel. He ran a marathon and went up there and hid and he's I and only I am left. And he said, Oh settled down. You can almost see God chastising a small child. Here's Elijah, the prophet. And he said, there are over 6,000 people that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now wake up. Stand up. Go do your job. Do your ministry. Because it's up to the Lord to work things out. It's amazing how he can take seeds planted from centuries ago and raise those seeds up to produce fruit. That's what he does. You don't know what your act of kindness could do in somebody else's life. You have no comprehension of it. And a lot of time, and we're just not going to see most of what God was blessed with permitting us to do, we're not going to see any of, what any of the fruit is till eternity. But when somebody called and they just, you know, poured out their heart, and you had no real advice. <laughs> For them. But it was comforting. It was encouraging. And that played a major role in their life, getting straightened back out, turned around, headed in the right direction, whatever it was. And you may not ever hear from them again, and yet have a significant part to play in their life. And if you think back about your life, I'm sure you can think of little things, seemingly little things that happened in your life that serve to wake you up and get you headed in the right direction. And see, we can be that same person, open to opportunities. <clears throat> At salvation, we have this gift and a ministry. There's faith, hope, and love to be found in the local church. We've talked many times that this is the, mo- the mark of a church. What is a model church? has nothing to do with the buildings. Nothing to do with the income of the attendees, has nothing to do with the uh, ornateness of the uh, gardens, the grounds, or anything else, and nothing to do with that. The mark of a church in the eyes of God is is the the group's faith, hope, and love. That's the markers of the church. First Thessalonians one, you can read it in verse two and three. It faith see focuses on the object of the faith. The executor, Jesus Christ. He's our high priest and he's our teacher. Oh, you call me teacher. Yeah, indeed. He is the teacher. Then to follow him, if we're going to follow the teacher, we have to be teacher, teachable. Say, we're going to follow the rabbi. Jesus the rabbi, because rabbi means teacher. We're going to follow him. We need to be teachable. If we're going to be disciples, we need to be teachable. Disciples are students of the word of God. We need to be teachable. And hopefully become able to teach. Now, we might not teach in certain settings. Might not be our calling. But we need to be willing and able to teach whenever opportunities arise. We can teach with our children. We can teach at the the grocery stores get opportunity this last week and met with a couple of young certain young men doing service on some uh things and <clears throat> it was quite interesting we got talking about marriage and um, and i said well one of the most important things in your marriage is to is to uh hold marriage in honor with one another and they kind of looked at me funny like oh really <laughs> in this culture, this society? And I said, no, it's important because, you know, Helen and I have been married almost 53 years and holding a marriage in honor is extremely important. And um, so at least, I don't know what that did, if anything, but what it did was plant a seed for at least maybe they'll think about there. And I don't, I, it seems like one of them was married and one of them wasn't. And it seemed like the one guy that was married was having a Honorable marriage. I mean, there wasn't any negative response, but it was kind of... They weren't really expected to hear that while standing out in the sun. So that's (laughs) that's what... You you have opportunities and and become able to teach others. And you can have those teaching moments that you look for with your children, grandchildren, friends, business associates, whatever. Just those teaching moments. And therefore... A local church should focus on teaching the Word. And the individual application is to be taught so you can be a teacher. All of us need to be able to teach. And to do that, we need to know what we're supposed to teach. And then we have to be willing to do that. And he'll put us in different circumstances and situations and opportunities if we are open to that. Hope is focused on the planner. See, what is faith focused on the object? Who's the object? Jesus Christ. Hope is focused on the planner. Who's laid out the design for the future? Who's the father who works all things together for good in accordance with his word? Thus, a growing relationship with each member of the Trinity builds our hope. As we grow in faith, hope, and love, guess what? Our hope is going to grow because we're looking to the planner. Right now, if we don't look to the planner and know his word and have a faith in it this world's a mess and will not produce any form of peace it's not going to do it there is no spiritual peace that goes with what is going on in this world today none but when you when you believe the father's word who inspired it through the through the holy spirit when you believe it there's an opportunity for peace so I know he's going to work it all out for good. I know that <clears throat> no, we're not going to kill the world. We're not gonna do it no matter how stupid we might get we're not we can't we can't tear it up now it doesn't mean we're supposed to be bad stewards. that violates another part of the word, but what it does say is that hey we we don't have to obsess to the point of worshiping it i I heard today that We might have a shortage of prairie chickens in western Oklahoma that can affect our economy. I don't know if you heard that one today on the news or not. It just popped up. So they want to put them on the endangered list, and now people are so upset, they don't want them on the endangered list. And I'm going, what effect do they have on the economy anyway? (laughs) What's a prairie chicken got to do with the economy of western Oklahoma? I think all you do is hunt them. and eat them, and it's not a major food source in western Oklahoma where there's cows all over the place. So I haven't figured out just yet what. Okay, that's to me it's obsessing about all the wrong stuff. <laughs> and there are much more important things than to have our legislators talking about prairie chickens in western Oklahoma. Anyway, but see, a real hope is... If they can go ahead and put them on the endangered list, go for it. (laughs) So what? You know, that's not going to affect my peace and not going to affect my hope. A church that has faith and loves God and others ought to be willing to share the hope that is in them, thus being evangelistic. That's what a local church should be. Teaching, fellowship, and evangelism. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the object of the faith, the planner of the faith, the, the, the uh, revealer of the faith, the Holy Spirit. And the closer you get with all of them, then, then what happens in a church? Faith, hope, and love. How's that manifested? Teaching, fellowship, and evangelism. I think that's part of the way the church should function. I didn't make that up. Gene Getz did out of Plano, Texas. And he started that and said, that's what a church should focus on. When I was uh, rethinking some things in the 80s, I got a lot of his books, read them, excellent books, uh, full of excellent information. And uh, he, one of them was The Measure of a Church. One of them is The Measure of a Man, another great book. Measure of a Church is, is uh, this book. And <clears throat> he was pointing out that Some churches only emphasize teaching. And what happens when all they emphasize is teaching? Then they become arrogant, self-centered, and he described a lot of churches I knew to a T. And then he said, what about a church that's all fellowship? Well, there's no edification and no way to withstand all the difficulties that that you face in this life. And what about a church that that is all evangelism? They're a revolving door and not making disciples. They're getting people saved and leaving the babies in the street. What does a church need? A balance. Teaching, fellowship, and evangelism. And I thought, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Balance is so very important. Anytime we get out of balance, as an individual, as a church, then we, we run into problems. <clears throat> A church has faith and should, we should be willing to help to share the hope that's, that's in us. The application, leave what's comfortable. Tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, faith, hope, and love. Love is brought by the revealer of God's plan. The Holy Spirit. Isn't that the fruit of the Spirit is love? Didn't the Holy Spirit just move inside of you the moment of salvation? What did he bring with him? Love. Love is brought by the revealer of God's plan, the Holy Spirit, who establishes fellowship and he gives spiritual gifts. See the interconnection with the Trinity, with faith, hope, and love, with teaching, fellowship, and evangelism. Submitting to his holiness brings fellowship and the use of our spiritual gift in an honorable way. And a church should have a spiritual fellowship among its members. Fellowship, physical fellowship is great and fine and good, but the real fellowship is spiritual. It's wonderful to be able to sit down and talk and visit about spiritual things. The spiritual fellowship amongst its members, and the application is to embrace God's love, transform you, and let it transform you so you can spread it. Because the more it changes us... See this... in not this thing about transformed? On the end of this thing? How do you know if you're transformed? Loving God and loving other people. <coughs> loving when you don't understand what He's up to. Love others when they don't deserve it. Things are changing in your life. Embrace His love. Because that's a godly love. It's a godlike love. And let it transform you so you can spread it. You can give your testimony other people and say well this is what's happened in my life this is how I've seen him work in my life and you know it's amazing what that does to lead others to the Lord Jesus Christ let's pray Father we thank you again for your amazing love your matchless grace Father we just uh, cannot thank you enough Father we do look forward to our time in eternity with you but Father why you've chosen chosen to leave us here i pray father that you will uh, continue to challenge us enlighten us test us grant us opportunities give us wisdom to know exactly what what we could do that would honor and please you and father let us look to you in all things for we ask it in jesus name amen